Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Harum Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast and as always for taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, we're going to be doing something a bit different. And I know I've covered a wide variety of topics in the podcast so far and you know the main episodes that I've covered so far have done a lot of things with culture, history, and politics, but I also wanted to do some episodes where I broke down or I got into depth into certain important people uh, in the Muslim world, in both past and present. And what I really wanted to focus on was mainly past and present heroes that have to do with the Muslim community, either those from you know years ago or those that are active right now. And the main reason is because there, there's often a lot of interesting things to learn about people or just in the past and more specifically, not just learn about broad historical ideas or broad historical events, uh, if we're talking about someone in the past, that is, uh, and also learn about the person themselves, you know, who they actually were. And, you know, I'll be doing the same as well for any sort of present heroes where I'll go into depth as to who they are more or less than just, you know, sort of where they are and what they are doing. And so to kick off this sort of new, I guess, set of episodes, I guess I want to say a series of episodes, uh, I wanted to then focus on a very famous Muslim. And I think one that uh, is just about, I don't know, I guess you could argue is probably one of the most famous Muslims of all time. I mean, he's well known throughout, I think, I think any of the Muslim world, to be honest. And he's a beacon and an icon for a lot of Muslims in a lot of different areas and is often really the, the kind of, I guess, the, the the bar when it comes to what a good Muslim ruler really is. And if some of you haven't figured out yet, or if you just for some reason uh, ignored the name of the episode, I will be focusing on Salahuddin, the uh, the uh, Muslim ruler during, uh, I guess it was, what, the 12th century, 12th and 13th century? I, I could, getting my, could be getting my centuries wrong there, but uh, regardless, the yes, the very famous uh, Muslim ruler and king who repelled the Third Crusade and, of course, conquered Jerusalem, uh, where then he, uh, through a lot of, uh, I think, very honorable uh, moments, showed uh, a lot of character and respect to the people who he not only conquered, but also the people that he fought. And so I thought there was really no one else better to start and kick off this series than to focus on probably one of the most famous and also one of my own favorite Muslim rulers of all time. Now, before we get into it, I wanted to go through some things about what this episode is and what this episode is not going to be. So for one thing, I'm not going to do a historic breakdown of his entire life, but I'll focus on specific aspects of his life. I don't have time, and trust me, we don't have time, to go through every single detail of Salahuddin's life. He lived a very interesting life and a very, uh, I guess, eventful life, to put it lightly. So we can't go through every single detail about his life. And, you know, I'm sure there's other people that have. So if you are interested in that, please do go check them out as well. But for today's episode, I'm not going to be going through every single moment of his life. Now, the second point here, and I I think this is something really important for maybe the Muslim community in general, 
is that we really should, and it's very important to, examine the historical people and their role in Muslim history. And this doesn't just mean in examining their successes, but this also means examining some of their failures. And I'm not going to get into uh, any of Salahuddin's failures, but I think it's important, at least in, in broader circumstances, or at least, sorry, broader uh, you know, examinations that we should look at the failures and the successes because every human being has their failures and every human being has their successes. And the reason why we do this is really the third point where we want to avoid the romanticization of someone. And the romanticization of someone means that we basically put someone on a pedestal and we essentially make them impenetrable, that they are perfect, that they are beyond any sort of critique. And that's wrong because for the most part, most Muslim heroes, in my opinion, should be critiqued because not all of them were perfect. Even people like Salahuddin. Salahuddin was not perfect. He did make mistakes. And there are times when he made errors and there are things that he did well in and there are things that, you know, maybe he should have done differently. But regardless, those are all part of what makes Salahuddin Salahuddin. I think it's really important to note that many historical figures didn't get to where they were without some of those failures happening in the first place. So then, I guess the question that is asked is, who was this person? Who was this man who we now name as Salahuddin? Well, I'm going to go through a basic introduction, and I'll go through some basic facts about his life, where he was born, kind of his name, his, his actual name, that is, because for those of you who don't know, but Salahuddin is not his actual name. And then also just sort of break down and hopefully in brief go through what the world looked like, specifically the Muslim world looked like at this time. So Salahuddin was born in the year 1137 AD, which is around uh, 531 after Hijra. And I believe that those should be the, the right years, um, unless maybe a year or two is off, because sometimes some of these historical dates are, are a bit off, because obviously uh, people maybe didn't keep track of kind of the year someone was born. But from what I found is that he was born in 1137 AD, which is 531 after Hijra. And he dies in the year 1193, uh, which is 589 after Hijra. And he's born in the city of Tikrit. I believe that's how you pronounce it. I really hope that's how you pronounce it. If I'm mispronouncing anything, uh, as always, I apologize, uh, which is in modern day Iraq. So he was born in a city that's basically in northern Iraq, very near the border of, uh, I think very near the border with Turkey and Syria. So it's near the city of Mosul as well. So the city of Tikrit still exists in Iraq today, uh, and it actually exists within what's called a governorate, or I think the governorate is the equivalent of a province. So for those of us in Canada, a governorate is a province, and if you're in the States, it's basically the equivalent of a state. And, and the governorate itself is named after Salahuddin. It's actually called, I believe, the Salahuddin governorate or, or something along those lines. So it's kind of interesting that the, the same area uh, that still exists there today is, you know, still understands, you know, yeah, this, this is where Salahuddin was born. This is, you know, this is his old stomping grounds. Uh, on the other hand, there's uh, a, uh, I guess I want to say a, a weirder fact, maybe not as fun or interesting, but the city of Tikrit also happens to be, uh, weirdly enough, the place and the birthplace uh, of Saddam Hussein. Yeah, so that Saddam Hussein was born in Tikrit as well. So kind of, uh, I guess, a weird coincidence, but uh, 
you know, what can you do, I guess, that they were both born in, in the same, uh, you know, city and the same, uh, I guess, province. But for the most part, I think even based on the fact that the government is still named after Salahuddin, I think it's fair to say that Salahuddin is the more uh, well-remembered of the two. Now, Salahuddin, like I mentioned before, was not his actual full name. So when Salahuddin himself was actually born, his full name was, uh, and I quote, uh, Al-Malik Al-Nasir Salah Al-Dunya Wal-Din Abul Muzaffar Yusuf Ibn Ayyub Ibn Shadi Al-Kurdi. So, yes, a very long name there. Uh, and just in case you were wondering, no, he did not go by all those names. And he actually went by one of those names, which was Yusuf. And so his actual name, or at least the one that he went by, uh, was Yusuf. So before he was Salahuddin, when he was just a boy, you know, to his mother, he was just Yusuf. And I think that's kind of interesting, right? Like the whole world knows him as Salahuddin. But if you went and asked someone, hey, do you know Yusuf? They look at you like, which Yusuf are you talking about? When really his actual name was Yusuf. Salahuddin was just a title. And that title uh, is actually a very honorable title. And it's actually a very, um, you know, a a very, it kind of tells you about how well liked he was. But his name means, Salahuddin at least, it means the righteousness of the faith. That's, again, that's a pretty big honorable name there. And, you know, it's, it's you know, a lot of pressure if you ask me uh, if you were named Salahuddin. I mean, his whole life he's been named Yusuf. And now all of a sudden, you know, people start calling him Salahuddin, the righteousness of the faith. That's quite an honorable name to, to be given. And part of the reason why he was given such a honorable name is mainly because of the state that the Muslim world was at this time. And I think to put it lightly or maybe bluntly, uh, the Muslim world was heavily, heavily divided. Sound familiar? The, The main Muslim empires were hardly working together. If anything, they were working against each other. And really, there wasn't much unity, if at all. Uh, it can get kind of complicated and that's why I don't want to go through all of it because one of the things with like empires especially during this time was that they'd often fight and conquer territory and then lose territory so it is difficult maybe at times to say who was the most powerful empire or you know the most empire or most powerful uh, I guess caliphate or kingdom at at this time in the Muslim world Um, but the three main ones that were alive at this time was the first the Great Seljuk Empire, which was an empire based on Seljuk Turks who came from the Central Asia area. And it's, again, complicated because the Central Asian migration into areas of the Middle East uh, is a thing that took you know many, many years. But uh, the Great Seljuk Empire was sort of the first, I believe, the first Turkish empire uh, in the Middle East Anatolia region. Um, And they actually came, of course, before the Ottoman Empire, which would be the Turks that came after. Um, Although the people who would then become the Ottomans, I believe, had already migrated to Anatolia by now. I I could be wrong. Um, But regardless, uh, one of the empires that was uh, kind of relevant at this time was the Great Seljuk Empire. Although uh, the Great Seljuk Empire was hardly that great anymore. I believe it was declining 
quite heavily. And for the most part, it had sort of been divided into a variety of different sort of vassal states and sort of uh, smaller areas uh, because there's a lot of, I believe, infighting. And so uh, many of the sort of warlords in certain areas started to rise up. And so it wasn't really so much of an empire anymore. Uh, but regardless, for the most part, they, they were still, uh, quote unquote, uh, alive at this time. On the other hand, uh, the other empire was the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, which was a Seljuk Sultanate area that was in basically what is now Anatolia and uh, what was at that point part of, or at least the former part of the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire considered itself the descendants of the Romans. And so that's why uh, when the Seljuk Sultanate conquered the area of uh, kind of the Byzantines, it was called the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. And so the Seljuk Sultanate used to be a part of the great Seljuk Empire, but then they, uh, they actually got their own independence or they got their own sort of um, I guess, freedom uh, from the great Seljuk Empire. And so then they formed uh, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. And so then the third and final kind of relevant Muslim empire at this point was the Fatimid Khalifate. And the Fatimid Khalifate was a Shia dynasty uh, in Egypt, which Egypt at this time was still Sunni, which actually plays a part into why Salahuddin was able to get to Egypt was because he himself was a Sunni. And there was many people within Egypt who were Sunni that didn't want to have a Shia ruler or Shia rulers anymore. Um, and I'm not going to get again into the Fatimid Khalifate. It's very complicated, even, you know, their, uh, you know, their own history and their sort of, um, I guess, inner politics. But the Fatimid Khalifate was once uh, the rulers of Jerusalem and parts of North Africa as well. But again, at this point, the Fatimids were very weak. There was a lot of infighting. And for the most part, uh, they, they were very, uh, I guess, uninterested in any sort of battle against the Crusaders. And actually, uh, some of their members actually side with the Crusaders to fight Salahuddin later on. But again, we're not going to get into any of that because we just don't have time to break down every piece of historical information uh, at this time. Now, at, at the same time that these Muslim empires existed, uh, the Kingdom of Jerusalem existed as well as the Crusader Kingdoms, which of course conquered most of what we now consider, I believe, Lebanon and Palestine. So for the most part, that is what the Muslim world and the kind of the Middle East world looked like at the time that Salahuddin was uh, alive. Uh, again, like for the most part, it was very divided and there was a lot of infighting without very little unity amongst the Muslim ranks. So now that we sort of understand, uh, you know, the background information as to who kind of he was and where he came from, I wanted to get into some really interesting, you know, inspections into his life and into understanding sort of what made him him and, you know, how we should look at him in, in a proper way. And I'm obviously just going to go through a few things of his life. And, and I encourage you to obviously go out and, you know, research it on your own as well and try to learn more about who he was. Because I can tell you this, that there's a lot of things that people you know, know about him. And there's a lot of things that people just sort of either are ignorant of or just were never informed of because, again, there's sort of been this uh, romanticization of him where he's made into this thing that he really never was. And he, he sort of morphed to sort of fit the ideas or perceptions that people want him to be rather than trying to understand what he actually was. And, and I think the first thing that 
goes into this is it really comes from his name. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to read his name again. But his full name again is, I quote, Al-Malik Al-Nasir Salah Al-Dunya Wal-Din Abul Muzaffar Yusuf Ibn Ayyub Ibn Shadi Al-Kurdi. So that last part right there, Al-Kurdi. If you didn't pick up on it, it is essentially referring to the fact that Salahuddin, and believe it or not, and this may be something of a shock for some of you, but Salahuddin was actually not an Arab. He wasn't even a Persian. He was actually a Kurd. He himself, ethnically speaking, uh, and you know his whole family, from what I understand, was actually Kurdish. They were not Arab or Persian in any way. They were Kurdish. They had always been Kurdish. And in fact, it's not really that hidden of a, I guess, a message. I mean, his last name, part of it is Al-Kurdi. It pretty much says this guy is a Kurd. And again, what's also interesting is that a lot of historical figures didn't try to hide the fact that he was a Kurd. It's not like people didn't know what his name was. People knew what his name was. But, you know, it's just the fact that no one really talks about or maybe mentions the fact that he wasn't an Arab, he was actually a Kurd. And part of it also comes because Salahuddin is kind of seen as, uh, you know, the, the hero of the Arab world. When really, when you look at the fact that he was actually a, a Kurd and not an Arab, he was really a hero of the Middle East, right? He wasn't a hero of the Arabs because he wasn't even an Arab himself. And, you know, you, you look at a lot of the ways that a lot of Arab countries view him. So much of Arab nationalism, a lot of Arab politics, use Salahuddin as this icon for Arab unity, which when you take in the fact, again, that he was a Kurd, it doesn't make much sense as to why you would use him as an icon. And this goes back to where people are making him into something that he never was. You know, Salahuddin was never an Arab. So how could he be an icon of Arab unity? And, and I think another great representation of this fact is that if you go to many Arab flags or even uh, Arab, uh, you know, kind of icons, you, you'll find uh, Salahuddin's eagle, which was an eagle that he had on his own flag. You'll find on a lot of Arab nations flags as well. And, and it doesn't make much sense, again, because, again, he wasn't an Arab. He, he was a Kurd. And even added to the fact where a lot of Kurds are often, you know, alienated or mistreated in some of these Arab countries. And, and to what degree, of course, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not saying that, you know, all Arabs mistreat Kurds, but Kurds have historically been mistreated in many Arab states. When you have the fact that these Arab states at the same time mistreat or discriminate against Kurdish people, but at the same time idolize one of you know the most famous Kurdish warriors in Salahuddin, there's there's a lot of irony there, no? There definitely is. And and it's one of those things where, you know, he is made to be an Arab hero, but I'm not convinced that he ever actually was. I don't know if he ever actually fought for the Arab cause. And and this kind of links back to, you know, the the I guess the the importance of him for the Muslim world. Because at the same time that he didn't fight for the Arabs, he didn't necessarily fight for the Kurds either. At the end of the day, in my opinion, he really fought for the Muslim world. He fought for the Muslim unity. He fought for that, not for something to do with the Arabs or the Kurds. He was not an ethnic warrior. He was a Muslim one. And on top of that, 
you know, I think there's also this sort of, I guess, further romanticization that he was a warrior and nothing more, right? Everyone talks about how great of a warrior he was, how many, you know, battles he won, whatnot. But I think it's important to understand that, yes, he was a great warrior, but I kind of mentioned this before, but he also failed in a lot of wars as well. He, he actually didn't just single-handedly show up and just win every battle. You know, there's often this sort of, uh, you know, this, this perception that he just single-handedly destroyed the Crusaders. The, the truth is that there's two sort of battles to look at. The, the first one was his conquering of Jerusalem, which was through years of struggle against the, the, uh, the Crusader kingdoms. And then the second is him actually beating or holding off the Third Crusade. And so him actually conquering Jerusalem was not against the Third Crusade. He didn't actually conquer Jerusalem by fighting the Third Crusade. What he actually fought was the Crusader kingdoms that were alive, or sorry, existed at that time. And the difference is because the Crusader kingdoms were not at full power. The Third Crusade was because it had the full backing of Europe, while the Crusader kingdoms were just independent kingdoms in the area. And it's still, of course, a very good feat, and it's very honorable for him to have been able to conquer Jerusalem, but they are two different things here. And in both battles and in both events, he didn't just single-handedly win every single battle. In fact, in the Third Crusade, he actually lost a lot of battles as well. And the, the thing that you know survived, or at least allowed him to continue to hold Jerusalem was that he was actually able to just sort of tire out the Third Crusade. I mean, for one thing, he knew that he could always stay in his areas because they were, you know, they were ruled by him, while the Third Crusaders couldn't stay in, you know, Palestine forever. They had to go home eventually because they didn't live in Palestine. So they had to go home. And so his tactics were less much, you know, were, were less about going on a full-out invasion into Crusader lands and more about sort of delaying the Crusaders and, and buying himself time because he knew they couldn't stay. And uh, I think this is a really important part when you're talking about how great of a warrior he was. It's important to understand that he didn't just fight battles and win them. He lost them, but he also understood that there was moments when it was better not to fight, when it was better to you know hold off on, on a full-scale invasion or a full-scale attack. And on the other hand of this, you know, it's kind of interesting to view him as a warrior because in my opinion, if you made a time machine and you went back in time and you met Salahuddin when he was just a little kid, when he just went by Yusuf, you would probably be surprised by the fact that he had no aspirations to actually be a warrior. When he was younger, a lot of historical sources say that he actually wanted to just be an Islamic scholar. He just wanted to study Islam and probably become an imam or, you know, a hafiz or, or whatever. But he had no intentions to be a warrior. And, and it's actually remarkable as well that probably one of the things that made him such an honorable soldier, such a, you know, a revered person was his background in Islamic scholarship. You know, those years that he probably spent learning at the mosque really paid off because when it came to tough decisions, when it came to, you know, uh, giving, um, you know, uh, a just decision to his enemies or, or being humble or, or being merciful, he understood that because he had that Islamic teaching 
behind him. And, and I think it's so interesting that we only view him as a warrior and we forget that he was also a very knowledgeable person in Islam itself. He was very well versed in a lot of, you know, hadiths, in, in scholarship, uh, in, you know, the Quran as well. He was a very, very pious man. And, and I just think it's such a, it's such a shame that he's only viewed as a warrior because he did have a lot of background in Islam, you know, in, in the teaching of Islam as well. And lastly here, he also did leave an architectural legacy. He didn't just sort of rule areas and, and conquer land, but he did actually build some very uh, iconic monuments as well. And one of them is called the Citadel of Salahuddin or the Citadel of Cairo. I think that's the other name for it. And it, as the name suggests, it exists in Cairo. Uh, and it was the seat of governance of Egypt for over 700 years after Salahuddin's uh passing away. I think this is something really important in that, you know, Salahuddin builds the citadel and not only does he get, you know, honored uh, by having such a, you know, a large and monumentous uh, building. And, and I, I suggest that if you guys do have time, go look it up. It's a very uh, interesting building to, to look at, but also to the fact that the people who came after him honored him as well by holding their government inside of his citadel as well. Because, again, that's his legacy. That's how, you know, revered he was as a human being. That's how much respect that the people of Egypt have for him afterwards, is that, you know, they they still held their government within his citadel because why wouldn't you, right? Like, he's the most iconic Egyptian figure in what? In, in I guess the medieval ages and in the Middle East, he, he was he was such an iconic figure that you know it was probably such an honor for so many of the other kings to be holding it in Salahuddin's citadel. And although I mentioned that a lot of people honored Salahuddin years after as well, and that the Muslim world at this time was very divided, it's also important to note that Salahuddin was actually not the first Muslim ruler to actually oppose the crusaders once they had established the kingdom of Jerusalem and the crusader kings in the Palestine area. And the reason I mention this is because there's often this sort of, uh, I don't want to say lie in the teaching of history, but maybe this misteaching of history where people say that Salahuddin kind of single-handedly raised the armies that then defeated the crusaders. And although this is true to some degree, it's not necessarily true because he, again, he's not the first person to actually start this. In fact, he wasn't the, the first ruler to even begin the opposition of the Crusaders. And, and, and I want to make this clear that Salahuddin was very influential in repelling the Third Crusade, but he was not alone in the fight. And it's really important that we emphasize this so that we understand that change didn't happen just because of one person. It happened because of a variety of people. It happened because of a variety of actors that strived for that change. A lot of kind of, his, kind of history, the way it's taught often, uh, is taught that it was just sort of a one person that caused everything to happen. This one person is the reason that, uh, you know, a, a change occurred. Or, you know, in this case, a lot of times people will oversimplify history to say that it was just Salahuddin that fought against the Crusaders and that he started the fight. 
But right now, I'm going to go through a few little details that people don't necessarily know that actually, really, that you know, he wasn't the only one that was starting the fight against the Crusaders. And the first kind of person to look at is a man by the name of Imad ad-Din Zengi. And he was the founder of the Zangid dynasty, or the Zengi dynasty, uh, which originally began uh, because he himself, uh, Imad ad-Din Zengi, uh, he was actually the Atabeg of Mosul. And the Atabeg is essentially a, uh, a sort of a, a ruler for the Seljuk Empire. And so I mentioned how kind of complicated it, it was at this time. So the Seljuk Empire, again, existed, but it ha- often had these sort of I guess you could call them provincial rulers. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Uh, a provincial ruler of sorts who eventually started to conquer more land and gained his own power. And uh, Imad ad-Din Zengi originally began as the Atabeg of Mosul. I, I actually forgot to, to mention this earlier, but uh, Imad ad-Din Zengi lived from 1085 to 1146. So he lived quite before uh, Salahuddin was even born. But he essentially begins the actual opposition by capturing the city of Odessa in 1144, and then two years later captures Aleppo. But uh, tragically, he's actually assassinated in 1146 after capturing Aleppo. And eventually, he's then succeeded by his his son and his successor, uh, a man by the name of Nuruddin. And Nuruddin himself is actually a very interesting man as well. And if I'm going to be honest, uh, he's also a person that people don't look into enough because he also was a man who had a, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a very a strong religious background to him and a strong religious character as well. Nuruddin's strong religious character and background is evidenced by the fact that his name Nuruddin translates to the light of the faith. So just like Salahuddin, he actually had a very honorable name as well. And he was a man who, uh, you know, again, was also fighting for the unity of the Muslim world. And he continues his father's work and where he then starts to conquer more states and more area where he then builds up an army that can actually, uh, you know, it can at least oppose the Crusaders to some degree. At this point, he doesn't actually fight the Crusaders head on. And I don't believe Nuruddin actually fights any of the Crusader kingdoms head on, except for maybe uh, some of the smaller ones. But for the most part, he does start that work uh, where he then you know, establishes uh, the parameters that allow for sort of a Muslim opposition to the Crusaders. And interestingly enough, Nuruddin's army is also where Salahuddin's father and his uncle actually become involved uh, into the into the the fight as well, and and Salahuddin's ancestors were for the most part uh, they were also trained warriors. Um, but Salahuddin's father, whose name was uh, Najm ad-Din Ayyub, so Ayyub uh, being the last name, uh, and his uncle Shirku, uh, they were both kind of the link that gets Salahuddin involved into uh, you know the military that eventually he then becomes kind of the the Sultan or Khalif uh, of you know the Ayyubid dynasty. And so I think it is kind of interesting to look at it that way because, you know, Nuruddin kind of integrating the, the two, uh, you know, his, his father and, and his uncle kind of is what bridges the, the gap for Salahuddin to sort of join the battle as well. And this is, again, where I go back to saying that, you know, the, the idea that he was just a single man who, you know, fought through all the crusaders was wrong, right? In reality, like, again, like what history shows us 
is that change occurs through the progress of multiple leaders and a society that encourages that change. The society of the Muslim Ummah at that time wanted that change. That society was able to unite around people like Imad ad-Din Zangi or Nur ad-Din Zangi or you know Salahuddin or, or Shirku, right? Like these are people that they were able to unite around. They were they, these are people that were able to you know be seen as leaders. And I think that people you know it's right to look at Salahuddin as a person who fought against the Crusaders, but it's wrong to say that he single-handedly did all of this because it's disqualifying that the success of Imad ad-Din Zengi, for example, conquering Mosul and Odessa and Aleppo that allowed then his son, Nuruddin, to then you know conquer more area that eventually allowed Salahuddin and his uncle to join the army as well, who then also expanded the areas into areas like Egypt and, and Syria and Iraq. Right? None of that happens unless those people that come before him actually lay the groundwork that then allow him to become Salahuddin. Also, on a side note, I just wanted to take a few seconds to sort of honor his uncle. And his father, by the way, was also a great warrior as well. But his uncle's a very interesting figure in all of this. Shirku, which is his uncle's name, he had a very impactful uh, I guess, legacy on Salahuddin. And it, it mainly has to do with the fact that Shirku is the one who, uh, allegedly at least, uh, from what I found, is the one who actually pushes Salahuddin to join the military. So apparently when Shirku actually goes to him first and, and says to him, you know, join the military, Salahuddin is kind of, you know, he, he's not exactly into it. Like I mentioned before, he was actually more interested uh, in, you know, Islamic scholarly uh, stuff, right? He, he wasn't interested in, in wars or he wasn't really that interested in fighting and and it's through Shirku that he actually learns a lot about how to fight, how to you know how to lead, uh, how to you know uh, how to prepare for a battle. These kind of things. There's a lot of things that Shirku leaves with him that eventually, of course, let him become Salahuddin. Which which again goes back to what I was saying before. The idea that he was just one man is wrong. He learned from others just as much as others have learned from him. And another thing with Shirku, and this is something that I think makes him such a cool character, his name translates to, uh, I kid you not, the Lion of the Mountains. That's what his name translates to. Shirku means the Lion of the Mountains. It's a very, very cool name. I, I gotta say, like, it is, uh, I mean, that that's definitely... Uh, you know, one of those kind of, uh, I guess, what do you want to say, alpha names? Like, you name your kid Shirku, you expect a lot out of them. And, and I mean, the, the guy Shirku himself, I mean, he definitely did, right? He became a, a very powerful warrior and, and one of, you know, the, the finest warriors, I think, of his time. And his name is the Lion of the Mountains. That's just, that's so cool. And, and then last but not least, I, I wanted to end sort of uh, this episode or at least conclude, uh, you know, this investigation into who Salahuddin was, by basically going over how he was a, a generous and caring person in both, you know, big and small ways. And, and I think this is really interesting because you'll often hear these things about kings, about them being generous, but it, it's often in a very sort of big and, you know, public kind of fashion. And as Muslims, you know, there's this imperative on us that we don't just be charitable when others are watching, that we're charitable when nobody's watching, 
right? Because we should be charitable when we know that there's going to be no publicity. And I really do think Salahuddin definitely, he, he shows this in, in many different ways. And I think the first one that I want to cover is after the Battle of Hattin, uh, when he does defeat the Crusader armies that eventually uh, he then goes and captures Jerusalem. He captures uh, a man by the name of Guy of Lusignan, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Lusignan? I don't know how to pronounce it, if I'm going to be honest. I lied before. Um, I think it's like French or something, and I, I'm not good at speaking French, so I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But anyways, his name is Guy of Lusignan, I, I guess, uh, and he was the king of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And, you know, this this man was essentially the, the main opposition for Salahuddin. He, he was uh, a man who ruled a kingdom that most Muslims viewed as uh, improper as a kingdom that was literally built, I can't stress this enough, that was literally built by the killing of basically every non-Christian that was in uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, and of course the, the, you know, the enslavement of many of those people as well. And yet, when Salahuddin captures him, he treats him quite fairly, and he actually offers him an ice sherbet, which is, a, is essentially an ice drink, to quench his thirst because they were in the middle of a desert and it was quite hot. And even through all that, all those things that, you know, the kingdom of Jerusalem represents, Salahuddin still took that time to be generous to a person that he had captured to even offer them a drink so that they could quench their thirst. In another example, uh, Richard the Lionheart, the famous king of England, actually falls sick during the Third Crusade. And during this time, there's kind of a worry that he might die. And uh, because of how advanced sort of Muslim uh, medical practices were at that time, Salahuddin actually sends him his personal doctor so that Richard could recover. You know, it's it's a remarkable sort of story of chivalry and, and you know, and uh, of, you know, generosity where Salahuddin goes out of his way to help the, the main opposition that he was facing. Richard the Lionheart was a leader of the Third Crusade. And Salahuddin goes out of his way to ensure that Richard is not only healthy, but that he doesn't die during this. I mean, what kind of logic is that, really? Like, think about it. Like, if, if, if there was a war going on right now, like, let's say in Afghanistan, right? If, if the Americans found out that one of the Afghani leaders was going to die... Do you think they would go and help them? Do you think they'd bring them back to health? No, of course not. But Salahuddin goes out of his way, you know, out of no need. He didn't need to do this, but he did it because he knew that it was the right thing to do. In another example, when he enters Jerusalem, and many of you might know this example as well because it is quite uh, famous and well-known, but when he does enter Jerusalem, one of the most, I think, honorable things he does is that he doesn't allow and he, and he forbids the mass slaughter of any Christians or any retribution against the Christians for what they had done when they entered the city. So if those of you who don't know, when the Christians, when the Crusaders first entered Jerusalem, they created created an absolute bloodbath. They slaughtered Muslims recklessly. They, you know, they attacked innocent people. They killed babies they you know, attacked women, children. It didn't matter. 
you know, it was just open season and they were going to kill every single person that they found. And you can imagine that if you were a Muslim soldier entering Jerusalem and seeing those same Christians or the descendants of those Christians who had killed the people before you, you can imagine that there was definitely uh, some sort of, uh, I guess, feeling of retribution. And yet, even with all that said, Salahuddin still said no, because he knew that based on the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad based on what happened when the Prophet entered Mecca, he knew it was wrong. It was wrong to slaughter these people. And he, he forbid it because of that reason, or at least of many reasons. I've read that that was one of the reasons. Um, but of many reasons, he forbid the slaughter of Christians because he said, that's not what Muslims do. And lastly, he also allowed the Christians to stay or leave the city if they wished as well. And that is also very honorable because he said that if you didn't want to live under a Muslim rule and if you wanted to live under Christian rule, you were free to go. They weren't going to oppose you and they were going to let you leave uh, on your own accord. In, in another example, and, and this is one uh, as well as that kind of shows his generosity in small terms, in terms that where people won't necessarily know of or they weren't going to know of. But there was actually a story that when the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, a mother actually approaches Salahuddin and starts begging him. Because what had happened was that he, uh, the, the mother had a baby that was stolen from her, that was stolen from her by thieves uh, in the chaos of the capture of Jerusalem. And, and these thieves essentially took the baby to go and sell the baby then uh, to you know either another person or into slavery. Uh, it's kind of conflicting uh, details that I found, but essentially the, the woman's baby is stolen from her. And, and this woman begs Salahuddin for help. And you can kind of look at this in that Salahuddin is the newly you know king of Jerusalem. He has territories in Egypt and Syria and Iraq. He has no reason to help this woman. And yet, and yet, as you can imagine, in response, Salahuddin not only sent out as many of his soldiers to go and find the baby, but he you know, commanded them to go find the baby and return it to the mother. To go out of your way to send your own troops to help this one woman, this random woman. In fact, I, I couldn't even find any story that actually said the name of who the woman was. Like no one recorded who this woman was. That's how, you know, I don't want to say, uh, you know, random she was, but she was just a woman. That's who she was. She had no royal you know, title behind her. She was just a human being. And he saw that and he said, no, I'm going to help you. You know, I, I will find your child. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, they do actually find the child and they bring it back to the mother. And, you know, for me, that is such a, a it is such a remarkable story to think of a man who would go out of his way to help someone else like that. And and we we think and talk about so many great leaders of the world and, and they're all known for their ability to conquer cities, you know, their brutality, their ability to kill others. And yet here's Salahuddin and, and he's being remembered for, for what? For the fact that he'd go out of his way to help an innocent woman find her child. That is, uh, that that's that's just so... To me, that is what Islam or a Muslim leader should be about. This sort of generosity is also uh, you know, emphasized that it wasn't something that Salahuddin 
was just sort of do when people were watching, but it really was something of just who he was himself. And and it's recorded by many of his uh, you know followers and, and the people around him as well. And, and one specific person is by the name of Baha al-Din, who was Salahuddin's kind of personal secretary and, and biographer. Uh, although he was many things, but those are kind of two main things that he was. Uh, and the story goes that one of his, his treasurers, Baha al-Din, he kind of revealed in a story that he had always kept, he being Baha al-Din, always kept a certain sum hidden away for emergencies. For he knew that if the master, Salahuddin, learned of the existence of this reserve, he would spend it immediately. In spite of this precaution, when the sultan died, the state treasury contained no more than one ingot of tire gold and 47 dirhams of silver. When some of his collaborators you know, would, would chide him or would kind of, you know, chastise him for his, uh, for his spending, Salahuddin answered with a nonchalant smile and said, there are people for whom money is no more important than sand. I think that's a remarkable story that again emphasizes one last time just how simple of a man he really was. His, his people around him would hide money because they knew that if he would find the money, he'd spend it on someone or on something to help others. He would give it away. You know, he, he would just sort of help whoever he could with the money. There was no need for him to keep money for himself. He, he didn't care. It just didn't matter to him. The, the worldly money that existed just, it was irrelevant for this man. Now, with all that being said, I know that this episode was definitely longer uh, than previous episodes, and I hope that it wasn't too long or that it was interesting all the way through. Of course, this is my first episode uh, kind of doing this, so hopefully uh, I was able to sort of get uh, the point across here. But I really do hope that you guys picked up on certain kind of you know, importance, uh, I guess, aspects of Salahuddin's life and uh, of kind of the lessons that we can learn from his life uh, as well. And I'm just going to kind of conclude uh, this episode uh, right before the conclusion, but I just wanted to sort of reflect on uh, Salahuddin in one last moment. And, you know, I, I think there's three main things that I, I really pick up on kind of looking back on the episode. And the, the first thing is definitely that we need to understand our own Muslim heroes. You know, we can we can idolize people, I understand that, we can put people on a pedestal, but we still need to understand who our Muslim heroes were, and especially those in history, we need to understand them in correct and accurate ways, so that we really do get to the heart of who they were. And then the second is that the importance of proper Islamic education is just so, just so important about building proper characteristics. Like I mentioned before, Salahuddin was focused on becoming, you know, a scholar. He didn't really care much about being a warrior. But being that background of having that scholarship, it definitely plays a part in him becoming such an honorable warrior. And we can't emphasize enough just how important having a background in, you know, Islamic scholarship is. And then lastly here, change doesn't happen suddenly, but over time. 
you know, there's often people that, that you know, demand change immediately or, or, you know, want something to happen just immediately where, you know, they pray to Allah and then they, you know, they, they get worried when nothing changes. When in reality, change is something that occurs over time. It doesn't happen, you know, in, in a matter of seconds. It's something that takes years. And, and we see this with the conquering of Jerusalem. The Muslims lose it. And, and eventually, through the efforts of Imad ad-Din Zengi, Nur ad-Din Zengi, Shirku, and Salahuddin, eventually Jerusalem is conquered once more. And a final thought here, I, I was watching this video from Umar Suleiman uh, on, uh, on Salahuddin, and, and I think it's, it's part of his From the Beginning to the End series. You can find it on YouTube as well. But he makes this phenomenal point where he connects Prophet Yusuf salam to Salahuddin. And, and of course, we all know Prophet Yusuf salam's story, you know, the many trials and tribulations that he goes through. And then at the end, he becomes the vizier and he has the power to, you know, punish his brothers. Uh, but at the end of the day, he decides, of course, to forgive them. He decides to show them mercy because he's in a position of power and he decides that even, even though these people wronged me, I'm still going to forgive them. And Umar Suleiman does a phenomenal job of connecting these two because then he goes back to Salahuddin and he looks at the fact that when Salahuddin enters Jerusalem, he gives the same mercy to the crusaders as well. He gives the same mercy and you know the same compassion that Yusuf salam shows uh, to his brothers and that he forgives the crusaders or the Christians. He allows them free passage if they want to leave and he forbids the slaughtering of them as well. And some of you may not have picked up on this yet, but why is this so fitting? Why is this so, uh, you know, just beautiful? Why? Because Salahuddin's name was Yusuf. In conclusion, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. I know this episode was a bit longer than the previous episodes, so I hope that I was still able to retain your attention throughout most of it, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Salahuddin is a, uh, a remarkable and, and such an interesting figure that, that I honestly, I, I did not cover everything, even some of the more interesting facts about his life so please do go check it out, research more about him, understand more about him, because there's so much to learn about not just what it means to be a great Muslim leader, but also just what it means to be an honorable Muslim person. Um, and also, uh, if you did enjoy today's episode, uh, please leave a five-star review. Uh, you know, I, it really does help me and continue making episodes for this show. And it, you know, allows uh, other people to also find this show as well. Uh, because, I mean, just the way that most podcast uh, websites work is that the more, or at least the more popular the show is in terms of rating, uh, the more it'll get recommended to others. So please, if you did enjoy this episode, please do remember to leave a five-star review. But also, if you enjoyed it, please share it with others. If you enjoyed it, of course, others will as well. And, you know, as well, that's another way to help the show. Lastly, if you guys could, uh, please go and check out my Instagram page. It's Muslims in Your Backyard. Uh, I often post episode previews. Uh, I often will post about other stuff as well. So right now I, I will be posting uh, about the Canadian election uh, as well. Um, there's, there's a few, uh, I think all the parties actually have released uh, their policy platforms. So I will go through some of the important details that have to deal with uh, Muslims 
as well. And I also post on a variety of other things. So please do go check out the Instagram page. It's just Muslims in your backyard. Either than that, thank you so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. And inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again. Thank you.